literary blood form. So many, so many, so many damn books. Yeah, so welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. I'm Will. And Will is here. Uh, Will Chancellor, author of A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall. So tall. <laughs> uh, here in the damn library. Yes. Our new studio. Yeah, we're very excited. We uh, Luke forsake us and left, and now we had to create something from scratch. And so I apologize in advance for it not sounding as nice. But it has <laughs> twinkle lights. Yeah. Which is They're just not turned on because that's it's right. daylight. It's, day t- it's daytime. It's yeah. fine. But uh, anyway, here we are uh, kicking off Tournament of Books coverage. Yes. Um, tw- TOB 15. It's March. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm, I'm so excited for, <laughs> for uh, I guess, tomorrow. Yeah. I just wet myself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, we, we're very excited to have Will here, partially because it's one of our favorite books that came about because I started reading it because the tournament featured it. Yeah, me too. And you were saying to us that you, uh, you're, you were a fan of the tournament before your book was included. To a point of exclusion. It was the only thing that I thought was, was really exciting because it was the most transparent. And I don't know, I've been playing around with the TOB since maybe 2008, I think was when it was first on my radar. Oh wow! That's so. Yeah, it's a it's a nice long time. Yeah. So it must be so when you who, who told you that you were included or did you just did you know from when they announced? Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Internet called. I answered. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, I w- I found out just by trolling myself online, which I do a whole lot. Just nice. like. You know, check the Google, see if. <laughs> do you? Um, do you? I mean, so many authors say uh, don't don't read the Goodreads. I think they're liars. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I I, have, I think that you can actually learn a lot by trying to figure out how your work's perceived. And uh, and I mean, uh, give me a little bit of a break. You know, I've been working on this for like for eleven years, and it just came out. I think there's a period of maybe like four or five months where you are going to you know, go a little bit extra neurotic and, <laughs> and just start reading online and seeing what people say. Because I, I'm certainly not interested in creating works in a vacuum. You know, I, I want to reach uh, a lot of people. And uh, so I, I think it makes no sense to, to blind yourself to, what, to how people are reacting to something. Uh, you, um, you said 11 years uh, of working on the book. And it's, I was sort of curious... Are you, are you, I mean, after all that time working on it and now that it's out, are you like tired of it and you want it to go away? Or are you, are you still like in? It? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love this book, which is kind of a weird place to be. I think it's in a, it's much healthier if you can say like, ah, I didn't really like it and I'm just want to do better the next time. And, um, I think part of holding on to it is just because, you know, I, I'm a perfectionist. So like the things I've been I've been messing around with this for a long time before I felt like it got to a point where I wanted to put it in the world. And now I think it's just trying to completely get into the next project. And it's funny, just just recently, um, this book is pretty much other. You know, I'm, I'm no I'm no longer tied into it. And oh. and uh, it, part of it was this tournament. You know, because it was the first thing that I had where where I could be sure that I had some really smart readers and no matter what happens, I mean, whether people hate it or like it, uh, 
or use it as kindling. Like either way, <laughs> like you know, it has some utility now, and it's like a thing in the world that that people are going to, you know, at least look at if not read. And um, that really allowed me to get cracking on the next book. So um, I don't know. I wrote this week, which is I couldn't say that, you know, a month ago. I'm I'm about. I started with the next book, but now I'm about fifteen thousand words in, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get something finished by the summer. So we'll see. Oh, cool. Yeah. Not not sometime by twenty twenty six. I mean, if I say the summer, it'll really mean twenty twenty six. In in writer years, should be like a thing. <laughs> it probably is a thing that agents say. They're like, oh well, he says that it's going to be ready in eight months. So I don't know. Let's talk about this for the twenty twenty. Fall list. <laughs> um, so before we go much further, usually Mayor Drew uh, talks about what the book is actually about for the folks that haven't heard about it yet. But do you want to do you want to give a, a a summary of your book? Um, sure, it's a father son story. I think it is uh, at least as much about the father, if not more, about the father. The best way that I like to read it is as these two poles, and that they both inform one another. Um, the son, at the very beginning of the book, is a man of action. He is a 21-year-old who looks like he has uh, a great future ahead of him, only to have it in the first scene of the book get wiped away. And he is lost, decides that he needs to find something to do to make a name of himself while he's still young. He picks up and moves to Berlin to be an artist, but we all know that art doesn't really work that way, so uh, hilarity ensues. And his dad is uh, on the other end of the spectrum, and I think they're as far apart at the beginning of the book as they ever are in the book. His father is a man of thought and a man of inaction who's never been able to talk to his son, never been able to relate to him, and gradually, over the course of having to physically find his son throughout you know, uh, Berlin, Athens and Iceland ends up becoming, you know, more a man of balance than he was at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Yeah. That about, that about covers <laughs> that it. That about sums it up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good to be with you guys. <laughs> One of the cool things that I found about the book is how, how serious you get philosophically um, with with Burr and, and liminalism, which the first couple of times that I read it, I was like, oh, man, I hope What's-Her-Name at the New York Times reads this. Um, <laughs> or anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also hope anyone at the New York Times <laughs> reads If anyone at the New York Times, or anyone knows anyone at the New York Times, yes, I hope somebody over there reads it. But it, the did you come up with this philosophy from scratch? I mean, were, is it yeah. something that you um, believe in, or did you make it up well, for the book? Uh, so, I, I mean, I'll explain, I guess, what it is, and then the answer to that is a little bit complicated. But um, the story that Burr tells about reading Hesiod and coming across this moment in Hesiod where he's discovering, he where, he where in Hesiod's theogony, um, he's describing this goddess, Hecate, and he gives her all the powers of all the gods. And I, when I was first reading this, I was like, well, that's, when I, I was translating ancient Greek, which I was learning because of this book. And so I was reading I was reading Hesiod and I came across this passage and I was like, well, my translation's just off. There's no way that, you know, Zeus, maybe I could see him being, you know, 
pluripotent or omnipotent, but it makes no sense to me that this minor goddess of the crossroads or the threshold is given total powers of all the gods, but there it is, you know, and it's in Hesiod. And it really makes no sense uh, in this in this panegyric why she gets all of these powers. But I ran with the idea, and I was like, okay, well, rather than fighting against this text, why don't I take instead the assumption that this is right, that the crossroads are actually everything, that everything is an in-between space and a threshold, and that nothing exists, you know, all of the powers of all of the gods are in that moment when we're at the doorway, not when we're actually in the room, not when we're out of the room, but everything exists in that threshold. And that was what kind of, you know, that passage started me thinking about this stuff. Um, and I think the role of it, as far as how serious I am with this, I would say not very. I mean, like, I'm, I think it's really important to be playful about um, all of these things. And I think that there's a fundamental truth there. It's just not something, you know, I'm not a scholar. Like, I'm, I'm not a rigorous enough person to say that, or rigorously defend this. But I do think that there are some real problems with, um, so Western logic is founded on these three ideas, Aristotle's three classical laws of thought. There's a law of identity, law of non-contradiction, and then the third one, which matters a lot for, for liminalism, is the law of the excluded middle. And it all of our, our entire system of math, everything that we have is based on the idea that you can't that you're either in the room or out of the room. There's no being in and out. And in reality, everything in our lives is this in-between space. You know, like the, the present as a time is not past, it's also not future. Instead, it's an information that exists between those two. It's the two bleeding into one another. You know, um, being alive is not being born because we don't have access to that moment when we're actually born. We don't yet exist and not dead because that's the definition of when we cease to exist. So our, our entire life is defined as the intersection of these two things. Um, I think that you know, structurally, I was using that throughout the book, and I'm serious about the structure in the book, but it's serious about whether I think, you know, liminalism is a real interesting critical theory that should be explored. I don't really think so. And I'm, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm outside of my pay grade talking about that. But, um, <laughs> but I think that it's, you know, structurally, I was trying to play with like father-son and the father-son relationship itself being a liminal relationship. So the book is not really about the father, not really about the son. Instead, it's about this in-betweenness. And everything structurally kind of parallels that. There's different pacing throughout. There's different, you know, it's meant to be this, this intersection of two things rather than one or the other. Sort of off that, um, I was when I describe this book to other people, I kind of say that it's, it's uh, Rachel Kushner's The Flamethrower's meets um, Marisha Pessel's Special Topics in Calamity Physics. I love that. Um, <laughs> that's like the best, uh, yeah, that's the best compliment ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and partially I say that because like, especially Special Topics was so like replete with these references. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, um, like your references are... And I think precocious references too, you know, yeah. and the same way that Owen, to the extent that he has any of that, they're coming, you know, they're there is a precocity to that. that exactly. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of curious if you, um, if in editing the book or if putting it together, did you, did you ever like lean away from that or worry about the, those, or do you think like in the age of Googling, whatever you want? Um, well, this was really funny. I mean, um, my delivery date for this, so I sold this book in November of 2012. Uh, at that point it was an 85 page partial. The final version oh. was the, my delivery date was April 
of 20, April 15th, April 10th of 2013. I think the release date of the flamethrowers was April 15th or April 1st. It was right, it was April of 2013. So it came out right when my book came out. So like it wasn't, my pitch to Harper was that this was like Tom McCarthy's remainder. That was like at the time the best referent that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, as I'm turning it in, uh, flamethrowers comes out and I, I got that book instantly, you know, and, uh, and I, I had rich, it's a fantastic book. I love flamethrowers. I think anyone who, if you don't like flamethrowers, there's no shot that <laughs> you're really going to like my book. I think it's just beautifully written and I, I think it's an amazing book. Um, it's, um, but yeah, I, I, I hadn't read that until, I think I read that maybe the month after I turned the book in. So it wasn't an anxiety of, of you know, that particular book. I think maybe when you're trying to, to find a readership, it's tough because people are like, oh yeah, art books. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Give me another one of those. <laughs> yeah, um, and there have been, there were so many, you know, but um, I, 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 th I love both of those books. Those are both great books. And I think the the thing that's nice, I think it's important to to wear your learning lightly, you know? Like, we, um, the three of us here, you know, we've read a lot of difficult stuff, and I don't think that we should necessarily, as writers, avoid that and and avoid that content, because it, that, that would be dis, just as disingenuous as, you know, as uh, being overly intellectual and overly pretentious. So... I think it's it's just being who you are. One other thing that I wanted to ask about the references was is that you have literally a philosopher <laughs> that exists that you um, <coughs> fictionalize, and you know, will you talk about that for a second? Just like, <laughs> uh, like that's like um, a scary thing to do, right? A yeah, bit? I mean, I think that's the point where you're just like, fuck it, I'm swinging for the fences, and you're like, okay, I've got this is my one shot. Why would I? Why would I go? You know, no half measures kind of thing. So uh, Jean Baudrillard is in the book. Um, he serves as a mentor to Professor Burr, who's kind of, he, Burr has no idea where his son went. His son's name's Owen. Owen has left in the middle of Europe. Burr doesn't know where to find him. And Burr's cloistered worldview is such that he thinks, oh, well, I'll have a lecture tour and be like a provocative lecturer <laughs> throughout Europe. And that'll somehow get, you know, my son to know where I am. And, you know, meanwhile, his son could very easily just email him or like call him. But his son is kind of being a dick and just has chosen not to do that. And so Burr thinks, well, if I'm a big man, if I'm a, you know, brave man, seven stories tall and, and giving these lectures all throughout Europe, my son will return my phone calls. <laughs> and uh, so Jean Baudrillard is, is the great enabler who helps him, um, who helps him become a public intellectual. But they only get, uh, well, I guess I won't have any spoilers in there. But most of it, you know, as far as why Baudrillard, and I think the, the real reason was because Baudrillard was very anti-academic philosophy and very anti-taking um, yourself too seriously as a, as a thinker. And that fit you know, with, with what I, you know, kind of with what I believe, but also with what uh, the story dictated. And well, just to, uh, just to disagree with you for a second about what you said about the flamethrowers. Um, if you didn't like the flamethrowers, you're not going to like this. Uh, you're, you are a little, uh, the word is, I'm not going to, silly is the word I'm going to use, but that's not quite right. Mm -hmm. Where you, I feel like you're, you're being a little more, having more fun with the same toys that she kind of was like mm -hmm. very serious and putting up on a shelf. Mm -hmm. I feel like you pull them down and play with them a little more. I mean, I think it's that balance, right? Uh, between having 
fun uh, or taking something serious and also taking it completely not serious and just like trying to play around and uh, you know what's more serious than kids playing like there's (laughs) and and so you're right you know play to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's flippant um yeah instead play can be very very serious you know and and completely obsessive i just think it's important to to have some sort of, of perspective about these things you know and not be you know, not shove something down someone's throat. I don't think Rachel Kushner does that, though. Like, and to me, the reason I love that book so much is on the, you know, just on the line-by-line level of the imagery. It's just so, so beautiful. And, like, the images that, uh, the ones that James Wood uh, singles out in the New Yorker thing of that book are great. Like, the the trowel through wet cement for the sound of jets going across the sky. And, like, oh, that's yeah. going to stay with me you know, until my last breath. Like yeah. I'm, I'm always going to have that. And yeah, actually. Yeah. And it's amazing when those details can kind of hit like that too. And, um, but, or I'm reading uh, the first bad man by Miranda July right now. And mm-hmm. she uh, really quickly, she just sits like a, a, a woman sits down on the couch and she says, like, oh, I sat down on the meaty couch. <laughs> and like, I can now, now, like anytime I sit down on a leather couch, I'm like, this is quite meaty. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like, it's, it's gross, but it's also, it's perfect. Like, yeah, a, yeah. I, t- I completely already, I knew how that felt to sit in that couch. And which is, yeah. this to me is, you know, I, I, the people that I teach who are like, well, I don't read fiction because I, I like to read things that are true or like my, you know, my parents, friends or whoever that I meet, wherever who says that. I'm like, no, that is dead wrong. There's nothing that's more applicable to your life than fiction. You know, good literary fiction is able to explain the world in a way that change that changes the way that every single one of your days runs, you know, because in my waking life, I'm not going to care about the origins of World War II, but, you know, I am going to care about the way that somebody represents a couch <laughs> or, like, yeah. you know, the way that someone drinks tea. Like, these are things that affect me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why, you know, that's why fiction is ultimately more real than, than nonfiction. There's something cool. We're, I mean, since we're talking about the idea of evoking these images with words, the... Uh, trying to avoid some spoilers, but the collective that Owen falls into in Berlin, I mean, the book is set in 2004, which, you know, at that time, I was still, like, just coming into political consciousness, I guess. I was I was hoping to run from it. <laughs> it was actually, I mean, I can remember the very date that I stopped, the, the run-up to the, do you guys remember this? There was a countdown for Saddam, mm-hmm. which was the most absurd, like, public spectacle. It was like, okay, give up your country and, you know, like, turn yourself in or we're going to bomb you, you know, back to the 10th century. And it was the, the moment that I quit following politics was during the run to the countdown. I think it was March 15th, 2003 was when we first dropped bombs, mm-hmm. like, when the countdown expired. But the... The moment, I remember this precise moment that I quit, you know, just completely quit being politically involved, was they cut to the the CNN broadcast booth in Qatar, right? And this is still when, theoretically, Saddam had two months to where he could say, like, oh, you know, I was wrong, guys. I admit it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm out of here. Sorry. Good luck running the country and controlling all these rival factions. But, in, you know, instead, they cut to the CNN war room, and it's this $10 million, like, you know, huge flat-screen TVs. Yeah. They've got, like, everything, and they're running through this, like, the Gulf War Room two months before the war had like, you know, officially happened. And I was just at that point, the I was 
pretty much done with the spectacle of of war. And so 2004 was really a charged year, you know? I yeah, think that was... Yeah, I mean, was... those, the photographs of the prisoners at Abu Ghraib, like, I remember seeing those and the way that I felt when seeing those. And the, the, I, this isn't a spoiler, right? Like, some of the art that comes out of this collective invokes those photographs and invokes the way that... When... Um, Kurt's ultimately the artist Kurt, who's the mastermind of this this group of of really broken people in a broken tower. <laughs> he's like he he's using these pictures as bait, though. Mm-hmm. Like to him, and that's why he kind of has the last laugh um, because he he puts these up, displaying them as art, but he's really just bluffing with his entire exhibition at, at Art Basel expecting that you know it's it is bait on a hook and he's hoping that owen is going to come and actually make a piece if owen wouldn't have shown up he would have had nothing i mean he might have tried to justify it as art right. but um but to him he's admitting that it, that it's not art once he actually gets plan a which is owen showing up and it's funny there was actually uh, i was hanging out in in berlin with some artists after i'd finished this and and i it told them this whole thing and they wanted to do it so they want to um so i might end up like restaging something kind of like this. Whoa. Uh, which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that could be fun. Uh, wow. Uh, that, I mean, that was something that I was very kind of curious about um, was just, you said that you, you wrote the book and then you went after finishing, almost finishing writing the book, you went and visited some of these things. And, mm-hmm. and so I was, uh, did you want to change things? And did you after, after that? And I, you know, it's, it's funny the most of the things didn't change so much as they just and and the actual text didn't change, but the feeling did. I mean, so yeah. so for instance, in 2011, I had this. I collaborated with a sculptor, um, a con- conceptual sculptor, although he kind of bristles at that idea. We did this 14 foot clay piece for the new museum for their um, festival of ideas, and it took us like a year and a half, you know, to to go through this. And we were researching a lot about fluxus artists, and then. You know, we actually made the the piece, and then it it was an interactive piece that people would take a handful of at a time of this like giant one ton, fourteen foot clay sculpture. They would take a hand and put it in these molds. They'd put sunflower seeds in them, and then leave with these little uh, statuettes that were seed bombs. And then they could either huh. like throw, and so people threw these all over the city, and then. They, the clay would house the wildflower seeds and then they would just like grow wildflowers. So there were, you know, it was... Um, Did it, you see any of your wildflowers? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> these, That's great. These little things were all over. Um, most of them were concentrated by where people went to the show and then they were like, screw this. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That completely changed the way that I felt confident enough to write about it. But it didn't necessarily change the the writing that much, you know. I, it's it's hard to explain. It's, it, it, I think it's that whole notion of like being authorial or whatever. Uh, to me, that was the part that came from experiencing these things. Like I walked across Iceland for two months. Um, I did a solo traverse from the, I don't know, from across the country. But I ju- it's just sort of strange that I, I I kind of just can't get over the idea of doing it backwards of ha- of having written that and then and then doing it. It just seems like. I would I would feel like I had to change everything after that, but it's got, it's great that you could have captured it without. Well, it's funny. I mean, you change little things that end up kind of changing everything, right? Like, I mean, changing a a very small, you know, and a lot of it is is excision. So it's not 
it's not rewriting it, but just cutting things out that aren't true and just, uh, you know, maybe it just happens on word selection, but somehow you're able to get across the mood of what you, of what you experienced. And would that, you do it again like that? Sorry to interrupt, but like to do the backwards thing or, or would you rather? I think it's part of that was also just like growing with the book, you know, and growing as a writer. And I can't, you know, my, <laughs> ne- my, my next book, my next book takes place in 1969 in the Soviet Union. Uh, and in outer space, so uh, sure. um, so <laughs> uh, I'm gonna need a time machine and a Kickstarter for like <laughs> twenty million dollars. <laughs> um, but now I and part of it was redrafting the book. You know, I I wrote the first draft in about nine months, and it was just monstrous. And then I moved to the city with that, and then I rewrote it. I tinkered with that for five years, and then I re did a page one rewrite and. Um, Wrote that draft in about two years, a little under two years, uh, and then started again. And that was the the eighty five that I submitted, were the third draft. Wow! Wow! But to answer your question, I'm going to try to write books <laughs> in a shorter Different. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if my agent is listening, I'm sure he's glad to hear that. <laughs> but um, I want to just real quick. So you are also then you're an artist. You've had a piece at the New Museum. I had I was offered to be in uh, Art Basel in 2013 um, in Miami uh, with a gallery here, but I was trying to get I was too caught up in in this book to uh, like in all the you know day job stuff to do it. Um, there's a piece that I want to do in California. I want to do this large conceptual piece involving the lifespan of of butterflies, <laughs> but like um, but I think. It would be really disrespectful for me to say that I'm actually an artist to my friends who are actually artists. Right. I think like the the restriction that I'm going to place on it for is just that it's a something that I'll never try to make money from and and just always try to maybe break even on material costs. But you know, this when you actually see people who are real artists, I'm clearly like I I'm nowhere in I don't see the world that way, you know. Um, so my friend Daniel, this is a, a great for instance, we're walking, we went to hundreds and hundreds of galleries for different shows that he thought inter- related with what we were doing. We walk into this gallery and there are about 500 chains, brass chains hanging from the ceiling. And as soon as we see it, as soon as we round the corner, he goes up and starts blowing one end of it, just and it starts to move. And then he goes to the other end, and it starts to move that way, and then right in the center, <laughs> and it starts to move, and the whole piece begins oscillating. And I'm sure that he's the only person who did that, and it was just an immediate natural reaction as soon as he was confronted with those elements in that form. And I'm not like that with material <laughs> things in my world. You know, I don't have that level of interaction, and um, you know, I, I primarily see things through through images and words and kind of the overlap between those. So I I don't really think that, no, I don't don't have any serious ambition to be an artist, but I have a lot of friends that are on the the business side of art. Um, I have a lot of friends who are painters and sculptors and on the creative side of art. And then in the course of, of doing it, you know, I saw the kind of behind, and that was, to me, that was the big test is, being able to write about art from the point of view of somebody who's creating it and critique it, but the same way that somebody would critique it from the inside, not from the outside. That outside critique of you know the $10 million shark, I, I think that's mm-hmm. been done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was more interesting to 
try as as much as possible to critique from the inside out. Well, uh, yeah, let's let's hear a little excerpt from the book. Yeah. If uh, Will, you wouldn't mind indulging us. We've been talking us. about it so much. Uh, this is in Berlin. Uh, chapter 3, Berlin. It's, it's Berlin. We're all monsters here. Through wet March, Owen breezed across Berlin on his hostel's beach cruiser, pedaling the one-speed bike with firm, unhurried strokes, leaning into turns and sidewinding from Oistkreutz to Charlottenburg. Over the rain-slicked roads of Tiergarten Park, asphalt dolphin smooth, he skimmed quarter miles of cosines with broad sweeps from curb to curb. Each morning at the Tiergarten, he joined images, paired words, and left with something glazed and sharp, more pottery shard than poem. With a handful of shards, he pieced a bright mosaic of memories against the gray Berlin sky, lurid storefronts splashed with ancient yellow, Helvetica shouts in stoplight red, stockinged women stenciled to walls in dripping royal blue, canary yellow bugle calls of the postbank, kiosk green and construction orange on every corner, a full spectrum of brick from red to brown, Army-Navy stores spilling seaweed wares to the curb, consignment shop employees with purple-red bob cuts sitting on molded plastic chairs, the plumes of squinting smokers, the expired green of shutters climbing to roofs and tiling the sky. Um, I wanted to talk about Stevie for a second. One of the things that people talked about was that Stevie seemed a little bit like... Um, a manic pixie dream girl. Oh yes, that hard acronym. Um, <laughs> it's. Um, I mean, I, I think there's probably enough of a question there for me to get going. <laughs> but but uh, go ahead. Well, I just I just disagreed, uh, but but I was curious if you. The, I mean, it seems like it's been levied at you for this character before, or it was levied at myself when I was writing it. Okay. You know, and that was actually that was something that I was anxious about. Was like. Okay, am I creating an MPDG, um, or is do I give her her own her own say? And I think part of it was the the way that I saw this was that the deck of cards that I had was the deck of cards of the Odyssey, um, and then they're all jumbled up and reshuffled and on the floor and in a big mess. But the the level of at least that those were it's almost like a dream of that book. And I think the, it would have been, it would have been disingenuous for the story for me to put in too much that I felt like people wanted to read. I mean, I, I definitely knew that I was going to be getting some blowback for that. And I, and I also knew kind of how to fix it, but I didn't know how to fix it without telling a different story than the one that I was telling. So, you know, my first goal was to be, you know, it was to be consistent with the with the story that I was telling. And I mean, Stevie is, you know, she's studying Kristeva. She studies even a, a more uh, out there critical theorist named Suzanne Kapler. And she's trying to bring in who who's a who is a gender theorist who talks specifically about representation, which is something that plays in with with Baudrillard. But, um, you know, she's studying phenomenology at Mission University at the end of the book. I mean, I don't think she's like, oh, let's go listen to the shins. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, she kind of like, she gives Owen a whole lot of shit for trying to, in, in Berlin when she first meets him, she gives him a lot of shit for, he's kind of the manic pixie dream guy. And she's 
initially in this story, like, hey, get real, yeah. like, do yeah. something. And if there's one, you know, if there's one defining characteristic of her, I think it's it's no, you know, don't be such an idealist. Actually, you know, don't talk about it. Be about it. Like, actually, do something. And that to me seems like it's the inverse of the relationship with a manic pixie dream girl. Mm. Um, and I certainly think that there's, you know, I wanted, I begin giving her, her, you know, in chapter five, I think she starts getting her own voice. And by chapter seven, you know, she's the only character other than Owen and Burr who's, you know, whose POV we, we see through um, right. by the end of the book. And, um, you know, I would love to write a story about, uh, completely about her and about how she's with these, you know, the f- fucked up birds <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and how she deals with that. But I just felt like that wasn't, and it's hard, you know, like this is also supposed to be a book about a 21 year old and a 22 year old, you know, right, and it's that. And it's like, how do you resolve that? You know, like, do you put in everything that you've learned over the last like decade uh, into this relationship? of 21 year olds and, and try to represent them with, you know, the wiser view that you have now, or are you, or do you try to be honest with, uh, with what it's like to be 21? And that, that to me is a little bit challenging. Like I, I'm still not sure how to answer that question. Right. I, I think I could have written a different book that would have probably had, you know, that you couldn't lay that charge against. Um, but I, I think it would have been false, you know? So how do you guys feel about that? <laughs> I mean, there's something about I love I love the sense of the like 21, 22. Like these are kids. They're still kids, essentially. They're not. They're adults, but they're grappling with huge, huge issues of just like how do you live your life? Right. And I think that I think that capturing that I I I personally think that it's it's closer to the ethos of the book and like the to to be seeing her that way and that that was actually kind of my like maybe she is but but that's also where where Owen's at mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and 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 I think it's important to see her as as Owen sees her I think maybe my favorite scene in the book is when she's you know in in chapter 7 when it's only her and we actually get to follow her thought process more um you know and I sequel <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're back. Very good. <laughs> First of all, let's talk about <laughs> these fantastic drinks that we oh, have. Oh, yeah. Uh, so in honor of Will coming by the damn library, uh, I created a um, an Icelandic vodka drink uh, in honor of uh, the, the fifth, seventh, thirtieth locale in your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, yeah, you mean the bar, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the bars in yeah. your book. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I saw that Reka, Reka Icelandic vodka existed. So that with lime juice, uh, cucumber, and mint muddled together with some simple syrup, um, makes a f- and then shaken with ice, makes a drink that I'm calling the settlement. Also in honor of Will's book, <laughs> crisp and delightful. Oh uh, yeah, hey. <laughs> it's one of well, well the um, the recipe as well as the picture of all the stuff will be up on the so many damn books.com website, which we are now actually using. (laughs) (laughs) There's an awesome scene in the book and it was actually the moment where I was just like, okay, yeah, I I was definitely falling for your book at this point was when um, 
when Stevie starts to come up with this game um, where you they're going to listen they have I think um, five more five or six more days on this on this journey. on the lamb they're yeah. <laughs> they're running from the <laughs> running from the cops the press and my parents <laughs> is your name Michael Diamond no my name is Clarence <laughs> <laughs> so but she she decides you're they're going to choose a couple they're going to choose three albums each and they're going to listen to that album for the rest of the day and then they're never going to listen to those albums again for the rest of their lives that is a really harsh game hard yeah. uh, and have you played this game i haven't that's the one where people are probably like uh yeah that's autobiographical but no i was i was trying to i mean again it's the idea that stevie owen keeps trying to play you know tennis without nets and Stevie keeps trying to string some nets. She's like, look, you know, I don't want to be your three-day, you know, yeah. F buddy. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you just run away. She's like, if you know, you have to give something for this if it's going to be any kind of a relationship or whatever. And so she says, well, what's your favorite thing? Um, I want you to give it up for me. <laughs> and he chooses uh, Tom Waits' Closing Time, which is this record that his mom... Had um, had laid aside for him this LP as being like his that that album that she kind of wanted him to grow into. Right. Um, so that that's one of the records that he chooses to give up. And you know the idea is that he plays it once and never listens to it again. And it's it's a nice way you know it's a nice mnemonic because to the extent that you're able to remember those songs, you know have something to peg these memories to. Right. And the same way that the memories are not going to be there anymore, the, the peg or the song isn't going to be there anymore. And usually I think we kind of hear songs and we do the opposite. Like songs come on a jukebox and you remember this this time that has long since passed, but you still have the song to remember it. I think it's more interesting for both of these things to be floating away. Yeah. I think that's true. Uh, but my question now is... Uh, is just one one album you know what uh, what one album is important enough to give to someone else but you would also never listen to it again do you have do you have a, a answer locked and loaded from well see that's the bind right it's like do you go for your best do you go a team for like your absolute favorite thing because this might be like the one shot that you have to impress this person or like to communicate to, to this person what's the most mm -hmm. important to you or do you go for maybe you know B team, C team, something that you can live without, but still kind of cool in its own right. I really like the idea of like later on, like a, this song comes on in a bar and they're like, we have to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Check, out. please. Yeah, we're out of here. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I... I, I don't know if I have one. What would I do in that situation? Yeah, maybe? like what would what would be your? Like I would go for the best thing that I've got. You yeah, know? yeah. I would go for my favorite record of of all time, which right now is is Cyndi Lauper. She's so unusual. <laughs> 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 that's just oh. that's just where I am right now in all my right. life. Awesome. I have um, not heard that album, and I'm going to now. Um, oh man, so good! I it, name a better five song, five consecutive songs in in that. I mean, the five best songs of her of her career are all lined up like tracks two to seven. Uh, but yeah, I think I I think I, I'm just that I would give the best thing that I that I got up and and then just try to find something new. But have those memories, you know. And I'm the kind of I'm the kind of person that would completely follow the rules. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't cheat on it at all. I would actually do that. 
Um, I'm really, I like the idea of having some artificial constraints that are, and maybe it's just sophomoric of me to like these things, but like, I, I like the idea. Have you guys seen the five obstructions? Mm-hmm. Um, love that movie. It's, uh, Lars von Trier goes to, um, to a director of a short film called the perfect human, which was really influential on him. And he says, okay, well you're going to, because the guy's career has kind of been mixed since this like genius film in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. And so Lars von Trier finds him and says, okay, remake the film, but I'm going to give you a different creative constraint for each version of it. Whoa. And so, you know, it's kind of like Ulipo or some, like where it functions like a lipogram, but he says, okay, we're going to make the same movie, but now it, you've got to shoot it at eight frames per second. Right. And then he like, you know, and so instead Isn't of there it there one being, where it has to cut every minute? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and That's a to, good one. And then the one in India where he has to film, you know, in the worst place, you know, to have this like fancy meal. Um, but I like that. You know, I like having creative constraints. And I, think I, I think so think too. It's fun. You know, I've, I, as a writer, I've always kind of enjoyed, you know, in, um, in undergrad or, or even before when, when you had to like write, you know, my summer vacation or whatever it was mm-hmm. like, <laughs> I, I actually think that like prompts and, and rules like that, you could, it makes you, it, it focuses your creativity in a way. Yeah. I mean, chain yourself before someone else does. It's like yeah. you, were, you it's like you were saying about um about Jesse Jesse Ball off mic mm-hmm. um which about how he he wrote Silence Once Begun one of uh, the the tournament of books uh choosings this year Segway. with that yeah. <laughs> 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 uh with one arm behind his back because mm-hmm. he's usually like a fabulous writer. Right. And you could t- tell that he's he was always a fabulous writer. <laughs> but it's, like, you know, it's it's uh I think his his first 3 books are much more fabulous in the sense of a continental European tradition where he's going for something that's um much more image driven and intuitive driven and it kind of like uses that that dream logic and you're not quite sure where things are going to turn up. And he had, he had developed, um, you know, I think he was really like the best person at the, in the world at doing this. And then before silence once begun, he said, well, I, I, I want to do something a little bit different and, um, I, I want to write a different book. And so, you know, him anchoring it in the Naruto disappearances and anchoring it in these, uh, this element of fact was completely uh new for him and i think you know i think the result's great and he i think he did succeed in expanding a lot of um you know expanding a lot of what he does and probably i think his his next book is going to be super super crazy because yeah. he the cure, <laughs> yeah. just like well, ah. yeah the cure for suicide yeah. um it's, oh, it's a- and then he's it's in galleys now i've i've haven't read it yet. Uh, but let's talk a little tournament of books. Uh, let's prognosticate a little bit because it's uh, it starts tomorrow. And mm. that's very exciting. Uh, and tomorrow is it comes out the gate with the Bone Clocks versus Adam, which is just <laughs> I feel real bad for Ariel Schrag, who is a fant- I actually really love her comics. Uh-huh. Um, and she teaches at the new school, my alma mater. So, her I, dialogue's pretty great. Her dialogue is great, yep. and yeah. there's some really fun things in Adam. But it's just not—it's just not even uh, on oh the man. level of of the bone clocks of 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 breadth or or ambition. Although, uh, God, I mean, I'm going to be fascinated by this conversation. I feel like a lot of people are going to be mad. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the mad that Adam is included. Myself maybe being one of them. Well, it has a really strange... I mean, I, I, I think the uh, the way that it plays out 
this is a conversation, I guess, for the future because there's no way to talk about it without a complete spoiler. <laughs> but like the way that it shakes out with the relationship and with the romantic development mm -hmm. is the thing that's that to me is going to be the really interesting conversation. Yeah, and I don't necessarily see that as a, a winning conversation. Like I think the the best thing to talk about for that book, the thing that I would stump hard for, are those the the dialogue in the early scenes and the in the the way she's able to capture the experience of you know of being in high school, being 16 years old, is just right on the money. Oh, and yeah. Those first 100 pages are amazing. Yeah, and I think, it's, I think that really speaks to the fact that she wrote four comic books, mm -hmm. each one of them about freshman, sophomore, mm -hmm. junior, and she wrote them while she was living them. Mm -hmm. So, like, you actually, if you read the four books, you see her art getting better, you see her, like, ability to capture these, this dialogue getting better, but also... You end up, uh, I think you end up with something like Adam, where after afterwards, now she can capture that voice with an incredible facility that other people might not be able to. I, I think no one is able to. Yeah. I mean, I think she she really sets the bar for that. Whether or not that means that it wins out of her bone clocks, that's right. you know, I don't know. My name is Paul, and that's between y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emily St. John Mandel, uh, when when we had her on, she said that she w she's going to lose out to the bone clocks. Um, if she didn't know, because that was before there was any yeah, the um, seating. Oh or wow! Anything. So that was just like deep She's intuition. Just like I just know I'll lose to him. Well, that's funny because it might work out that way, right? Like, yeah. isn't she in that same? Um, so she's going up against Untamed State. Yeah. Right. And that's I don't know. That's going to be tough. Too. Yeah. Um. So uh, uh, other things in that first week, I mean, you go up against uh, Sarah Waters, the paying guest. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I personally, and I think you do as well, right? Yeah. Uh, we both have you beating beating that out. Um, Only because of present company. <laughs> 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 I guarantee you, if this were in England right now, <laughs> you'd be saying something in a different accent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Miss Waters. Yes, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, excellent. Well, I mean, thanks for saying that. I mean, I I don't know. Sarah Waters is a titan. Like the idea of being up with titans is a nice way to piggyback, you know. But I do kind of feel like that. I feel like a little flea on, like you know, <laughs> running on. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, like th I think that that's the great thing about the tournament is that like you like in all book prizes, like there's these debuts going up against these titans. And you kind of wonder, like, how on earth was that even decided? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so we'll get to see that, which is very cool, and the whole reason why the tournament exists. But also, I just, uh, having read The Paying Guests, I just, um, I really liked it, and I thought that her style was incredible, and her way of creating character is, you know, unmatchable. But <laughs> uh, I think that your book is way, uh, way more fun. And and has a lot more and does more with le in less space. So well, thanks. <laughs> so yeah, that's a that's a straight up compliment. I, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty nice much the best thing ever. Yeah, you? yeah. And you're giving me get, booze. Get really <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, the booze is to like cut through the uncomfortability of, <laughs> of naked compliments. Um, but yeah, th who else is up in that first week? Uh, we got all the birds singing versus a brief history of seven killings. Ooh, oh, that's the one that. Man, wow. that's the to me those are who's those are the that judge? That's um, uh, that's Elliot Ackerman. See, Elliot um. Ackerman is a he's a politicalish writer, mm -hmm. so I kind of feel like he's gonna he's gonna see the ambition in the um uh, of of brief history of seven killings and and understand it on a level that I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, 
I don't know. It's tough. Those are two of my, definitely two of my favorite, whatever, how many you want to, two of my favorite books uh, of the year. Yeah. And um, two very, very different books as far as the, the execution of them goes. I think you have much more lyricism on the whole in Evie Wilde's book. Um, True. And then you have more, it's one is going, you know, Brief History, I think, is really going out and explaining an entire swath of it's explaining a decade you know or two decades ranging from jamaica to new york and um and also like in the end taking on the crack epidemic you know and it's uh it's a huge 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 book versus versus, all the birds singing which is super interior and it's definitely about one woman figuring out her Mm -hmm. self yeah and and relationship to internalized violence and a lot of sheep yeah (laughs) <laughs> it, it, I mean, it almost feels like, and I, I, if I were judging anything, I would need to find some some way to some you know metric that makes sense for for talking about books because this is a, a to me a classic case of like one is going in Evie Wilde's book and then Marlon James' book is going out and just exploding outward um, from you know I think the very first pages of that book the deep lyricism of the ghost narrating what's going to come by the way like I would put those five pages or whatever for up with my favorite five pages of writing ever <laughs> you know right. like they're the so so good I mean I was my jaw was at my knees for the the first you know beginning at the beginning of that book and it's just tough like how do you make that decision about like a deep deeply felt interior book versus a deeply felt exterior book and yeah and and actually you know one of the d- most deeply affecting passages of literature i've ever read was in all the birds singing when she's losing her virginity and it's just like i mean it's so violent and sad and oh yeah i don't know i, I i'm like haunted by it in a way that i'm ha- you know in that same way i think that they both <laughs> they both achieved a lot yeah. and so i i do not um Elliot Ackerman has a, a difficult. This might be a coin flip. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, like, if it was me, I think I would pick Brief History. But something about All the Birds feels like a Cinderella story in, w- the, in the best possible way. I would choose All the Birds personally. Um, I don't know that I want to make a call because I, <laughs> I mean, I, um, uh, I don't know. I would just sta- I would find the way that they're in common, and I think that's on a lyrical level. And I would stack up. You know, I would if I were the judge, I would just say, okay, let's look at the lyricism because one that's the the overlap in the Venn diagram that they have is in these deeply lyrical passages, and I would just look one by one and see which are the ones that affected me the the most. Um, Right, and you're assuming a lot more fairness than a lot of judges even um, (laughs) even have in mind when they go into to choosing. Um, I also am very interested in the um, in the write up, but I just feel like all the light we cannot see versus. Uh, Wittgenstein Jr. Um, I really enjoyed Wittgenstein Jr. and I really enjoyed All the Light We Cannot See. I think All the Light We Cannot See is going to win that. But that's another one where they're doing very, very different things. And it's just like, it's really like um, Wittgenstein Jr. is about like a falling in love with a professor because their ideas are so attractive, Mm -hmm. which is, which he really rendered incredibly. Like I thought that was, uh, the, the professors are very real character to me. And, and I, I also loved, just like the, I, I don't know. I love campus novels. So mm-hmm. <laughs> and the actual, so the actual story. W- I mean, to me, that book, the the meta level of it is what um, 
if it did pull up an up, upset, it would be a judge who looks at it and says, like, okay, well, the way that that's riffing on the larger, you know, references to Wittgenstein, like, I I totally dig that. And, um, you know, and I think there's, in I guess, a lot of the same way that, that uh, Markson's book, like, kind of has Wittgensteinian in its conception right. and then, like, in, in the way that it, it plays out to where you can draw parallels outside of the actual text. But um, that's an interesting question. What do you guys think about, like, getting external help for your criteria versus, like, versus <laughs> your, you know, for, for a, a win versus something? Is that fair to say, like, okay, if this resonates with a deeper, you know, text outside of my text do i do i get to use that as leverage i think so i think well i think that it kind of similar to you um you using real life baudrillard in your in your novel um you know if if you if it works and it actually deepens your relationship to to both you know wittgenstein and and the character wittgenstein jr which is not truly mm-hmm. the um the professor's <laughs> name yeah i think that I think that that conversation is a worthwhile one, and and I think it's kind of cool to kind of bring up the um, that that books don't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's something about. I mean, I would love to see a judgment between Wittgenstein and your book, mm-hmm. and talking just about the philosophy of the two, and like, all right, we're we're addressing these these bigger themes, and you you kind of have to almost you have to think about how these things sit in the larger scheme of culture. It's funny because even if you tried to get, like, I mean, I think of by far of all the books, and I think mine's probably the closest to, to Wittgenstein Jr. And, um, but even then, you have the problem of, like, the theory that's in my book is idiosyncratic, really loose and non-academic, <laughs> whereas, you know, Lars is a, is a professor of philosophy and actually, you know, his is rigorous and it right. does like you can you can put that to any test that you want. It's not speculative at all. So you still have this level of, you know, okay, is something that's speculative that might have some, you know, shred of validity to it somewhere. And there's a yeah, but um it's it's always going to be impossible. My friends and I actually play a game uh, called apples and oranges, where we have to take two things that are completely unrelated, and then find a way to justify like which one's better. <laughs> so like, you know, and the the way that this would you so which one's better, remote control or a mask? Mm. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they both meet in the fact that they um they control your perception of the reality around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that a, a mask is just going to change how people are reacting to you while a remote control is changing how you're reacting to your environment. So I would say that with just amount, the amount of power given, I would say remote control. That's exactly the reason that I would pick mask. This is a fun game. Yeah. Is, <laughs> I mean, but you end up, you know, you end up uh, arriving at something that's approaching, you know, like a core metaphor th- right. between the two. And you also find an axis of, of symmetry of, uh, you know, in this case, power that wouldn't, that's not immediately apparent. And I, I think like good conversations about books, like in the tournament of books, like does the same thing that you, you can find a way to relate. And to me, that would be any decision would need to find whatever that one you know, whatever that one way of spinning them to where they they uh, they don't oscillate wildly, and then just see which one ends up on top whenever they're. You know, yeah, I feel like that's dangerous. Though the game is dangerous because you end up um, you end up 
you would end up like, oh, yeah, we're not friends anymore because uh, <laughs> I said Pepto-Bisnol was better than holograms or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else is on that? What, what, are we, what mashups are we not talking about yet? Uh, um. uh, uh, oh, the um, Department of Speculation versus Annihilation with Victor Laval uh, uh, judging. I just feel like he's going to go for Annihilation, but also people like to judge against type sometimes. So. Oh, that's true. I feel like the only way that uh, that Department of Speculation wins is if he judges against, he's like, oh, I'm not going to choose the sci-fi thing because that's what you'd expect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm super biased. Um, I yeah, you am love a huge it. fan <laughs> of Jeff's. And I've, I've been a fan of his for quite some time. And that that book especially, like the trilo- I love the trilogy. It was one of my favorite things I read last year. But that book especially, just like to see capital W weird fiction being put into like a mainstream conversation, I want it to go as far as it can. Yeah, I think that would definitely win. You know, we you talk about like uh, Station Eleven winning over like 20% of the, you know, the speculative fiction, science fiction readership and that being the momentum that made that book so huge. But this is kind of, you know, might work the other way of winning over this like you know snobbish literary elite and yeah. you know and able uh, to the extent that he hasn't already but right. then there's there's also the question of you know how much weight do you give we we have two books that are part of a trilogy here right right like you know mm-hmm. this and and Ferrante's book and so like how much do you and they're at opposite ends of that um you know how much do you do you orient yourself toward the future of that trilogy versus right. just the book in itself? And actually, uh, Ferrante's book is a quad. It's a saga. There's a fourth book in that. Oh series. yeah, apparently oh, right. this, September, this year. there's going to be a fourth one. Huh? Yeah. So that's even. I don't know. Like that, the Ferrante thing, including the third book of that series, that it's apparently so heavily draws on the on the rest of it. I. I that's a really strange one. I think that it's gonna gonna, you know, work against it. Yeah, unless you've previously, if you've read the other two, if if, and I've heard they're amazing. I I really want to read them, but I just knew I wasn't going to get to them before the tournament. Yeah, I mean, you kind of that's an, an interesting point. You can't only read the third one, can you? I right, mean, no, do you I, think that the ju- who's judging that? Uh, Terry Jones. Do you think like that's a case of like okay, I'm only going to read the I third think, one? Yeah. I okay. think so. You think it has to stand up on its own? I think like so. Without, yeah. I think so for the tournament. But I think that this is one of the really interesting questions of uh, uh, of again of when you look at like other um, award things and like a, a book that's in this uh, that's in it's kind of like Lord of the Rings winning at the Oscars. It's just like is this for the entire trilogy or right. is this because this is a really good movie or Leela or you know Lila yeah. for you know Marilyn Robinson? Like, do I give? that some of just the Gilead push or, you know. Right, is, is it, it the career thing or right. is it that specific novel? Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah wasn't that a surprise that that book wasn't included in, yeah. the, in the tournament? Yeah, that to me was like, that. that's when I started taking this a lot less is like, okay, these are like, you know, 16 of the best books, which is an incredibly flattering way to think about it for a short period of time. <laughs> when, you, when you actually look at the long list and look at like, okay, well, it's that's not the way that they structure the books that are in here. Uh, well, that's, oh, the last thing that we always do on the show is recommendations. Yeah. Oh, um, there are just so many damn books. I'm no. still mad at you about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to recommend uh, an older book just because we, um, the tournament is all about contemporary fiction and 
sometimes it means you, you forget things that have already come out a long time ago-ish. And so I'm going to talk about time, time and Again by Jack Finney, the finest time travel novel ever written. Uh, and it's about, it's about a guy who gets recruited by the government to try this experimental time travel. And uh, um, the, it's the best time travel ever where he just he puts on the clothes from the era from um, turn of the century New York puts on the clothes they from the era, gets set up in a Central Park apartment that looks out at a part of Central Park that hasn't changed from that time. And he lives like that until he just slips hmm. back into that era. And it's and you know, he falls in love, that sort of thing. But it's a great it's a great book. Time and again by Jack Finney. Nice. Love it. Um, I'll do another I'll do an old book as well. Uh, I just read Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut. It's about a it's quote unquote the memoirs of a Nazi propagandist who was also, as it turns out, a U.S. double agent. And it raises a lot of great questions of, of identity. In Vonnegut's foreword, he says, we must be careful what we pretend to be because we are what we pretend to be. And it's that idea that like mm. this guy was so good at his propaganda job, even as he was passing notes and all of these things, that that's who he has become. Like, nobody else knew that he was a double agent. He and his handler were the only ones. So does the fact that he was a good guy at the end of the day mitigate the fact that he was saying and doing these terrible things? Um, and it's, all, like, it's funny, it's Vonnegut, it's, it's witty, it's fast. Those dial press editions are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with beautiful press editions, Penguin 20th Century Classics, most beautiful of all time. There's a book that they put out um, called The Return of Philip Latinovich uh, by an author named Krelezia, K-R-L-E-Z-A. I don't think I've ever read anything that's better about the crumbling um, and the decay of physical structures paralleling the way that we view memory and the way that our memories sort to you know, the spackling uh, falls down, the plaster starts coming off in pieces. It's it's there on a physical level in that book, but it parallels the way that, that memory works, which is something that, I don't know, I've always been obsessed with. And if I were to go for a two nonfiction recommendation that ties in on that same axis, it would be uh, Tanazaki's In Praise of Shadows, which is the same cool. thing, like trying to have the the uh, love for an Eastern form where age is something good, decay is not necessarily bad, patina is what you would want rather than some than a closely polished surface. So uh, return of Philip Latinovich and in Praise of Shadows. Well, cool. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Will. Uh, thanks for having me. Fantastic. You guys are great. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there are so many damn books. And it's really, you know, it, it really is amazing just having people who read your work closely and, you know, are, are happy to talk about it. And I don't know. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah, but what, what the listeners can't see is the quality of the bookshelf behind me <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> just like, it's nothing but hits back here. And to be in, you know, any of these conversations is pretty amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. <laughs>